this week, Steve Ditko, one of the co-creators of the Marvel comic book Spider-Man, um, died at the age of 90. The stories of that superhero speak of how uh, a young student, a high school student, um, has been bitten by a radioactive spider and gains superhuman abilities. Now, the student, Peter Parker, uses these abilities at first as a bit of a gimmick, a means of entertainment, a means to impress people. But his guardian, Uncle Ben, teaches him that with great power comes great responsibility. And Spider-Man becomes a crime fighter. Our passage today is about power and responsibility. It's about power and promise. Power and hope. And how when we have power, we must do the right thing. Mark could have easily have recorded the death of John the Baptist in, in just a brief sentence. You know, Mark's pretty good at doing that. Verses 4 to 16 might perhaps have been adequate in this fast-paced gospel. Verse 4 to 16 just gets you through the main point John the Baptist has been die, uh, is, is dead, but people are saying that Jesus is maybe him. But Mark's not satisfied with just those few verses written, those brief words. He wants to reflect, he wants to make it more explained. He wants to go deeper into Herod's family situation. And he gives us that in a flashback. You know, something that you might expect in a comic story or a film. Taking you back beyond what has happened just now to explain where we all are. And so we get the details of the evil act and we discover how foolish words lead to foolish acts. The way for Jesus had been prepared by the Baptist. His work in the wilderness is where the Gospel of Mark began. His arrest, described here today, but already referred to in Mark chapter 1, signified the starting point of Jesus' ministry. It's when news reaches Jesus 
that John has been arrested, that Jesus starts to go out and do his work. Now, the death of John the Baptist heralds a third opening. As Carol mentioned, we've just had the sending out of the twelve. The twelve apostles have been told to go to the, the villages, taking the good news with them. And we'll be thinking on that passage tonight. So if you come to something different tonight, it's going to be the sending out of the twelve. Our morning's passage goes into the feeding of the 5,000. But that starts with those apostles returning. So there is this sense of the word is being spread out there at the time all this happens. The word is being communicated. People are being healed. Hope is coming into people's hearts. People are giving themselves to God and repenting from their old ways. As we hear that Herod will not change and does an evil act. As Herod ponders over all that's happening. The news of the coming of the kingdom of God gets to his ears. We see him referred to as a king. But the reality is that Herod is not truly a king. He's a political appointee. It's not a king how we would understand it. This is more a title that that he's sort of taken on himself. There is wealth. There is power. There is a bit of handing on of power from one generation to the next. But it's not as clearly defined as royal succession that we've seen in the Old Testament that we know in our own royal family today. It's more of a family dynasty that is going on. It's more like being a president who might have a relation someone close to him who also takes on power. Looking at a country without a king we might think of uh, some great dynasties. Um, The Kennedys perhaps JFK was the son of an ambassador. He had brothers in senior political appointments and still people within that family have political influence today. Likewise, the Bush family. George H. George W. Both becoming presidents, father and son. And then W's brother, Jeb, running for office in 2016. We don't usually see that same relationship, that same strength of family in politics 
this side of the Atlantic. We could maybe think of our own MP here in Mid-Sussex, Nick Soames, and his grandfather, Winston Churchill. Or if you're to look wider in the Commons, there's, there's the son of Douglas Hurd, who is Nick Hurd, the MP for Northwood and Ryslip, who's a fourth generation MP. Or from a different political party, Stephen Kinnock, the son of Neil and Glynis. There are families that pass it on, even though there's no entitlement to it. And that's a bit of what this king is like. He is a family, part of a family, that is passing on the power and has the power. Giving him the title king, though, gives him thoughts of kingship, the illusions of grandeur, and whether the power simply went to Herod's head. He has split from his own wife and taken his brother's wife. He welcomes the dancing at the party, the exotic dancing of his own stepdaughter. He delights in it. That is not appropriate, is it? He makes a great show in front of the senior men of Galilee and even offers his daughter, you can have half my kingdom if you ask for it. Well, it's not really a kingdom and it's not his even though it's being used in a, a, a sort of sense of extravagant generosity, a bit of a metaphor of take half my kingdom, it's, it's there as a play for the guests. A play that is beyond what it should be. Time after time, Herod has not listen to the voice in the back of his head. He's not listened to his conscience. And he has allowed things to get out of control. And God didn't allow that just to be a voice in the back of his head. It, he allowed it to be a voice in his ear too. Herod heard the words of John the Baptist firsthand. The word of God became audible through him. But Herod ignored the call to repent. Even when he decides to take John into protective custody, recognizing who John is, a great man of God, Herod doesn't go that little bit of it's really needed of changing the situation. Instead of just protecting John by making him a prisoner, he could have done something about his wife. Though he'd be a very brave man to speak against his wife, you know. 
But this is the situation, isn't it? He could have changed things. He could have repented. He has time and time again to do it. But he doesn't. He doesn't awaken to how his family should change or how his family should be. And he puts himself into an impossible situation. And I wonder, is it sometimes the same for us? Do we listen to the voice in the back of our head? Do we listen to our conscience? Or simply let it play on? Simply let life play its part? Do we think of what God wants us to do? And amend what we are doing? Or do we just continue as before? Do you just do as you please? Because one way or the other, there's always consequences to our actions. Be it a positive outcome when we do the right thing or a negative outcome when we do the wrong. Herod's extravagance, his adultery, his inept parenting of his stepdaughter, his loose morals, they all come to a climax with the demand for John's head. And even at this point, he could say no. He could simply say no. He has put himself as the position of the king. He's put himself as the ruler of the area, appointed by the Romans, but he raises himself up and takes that fully on board. And so when a demand that is unreasonable comes to him, he could say no. But he doesn't. He goes along with it. He didn't want to demonstrate weakness. He didn't want to cause embarrassment for himself. But in fact, by not saying no, he shows that he truly is weak. He follows through. Rather than lose face, he will sacrifice an innocent man. How often do we sacrifice the innocent man so that we might have our pleasure or our desire, so that we don't suffer the lack of face? We might like to think that we would never injure the innocent. But the reality is the decisions we take in business and the decisions we take in our domestic life sometimes do cause the innocent harm. Sometimes, perhaps frequently, we do not even know who that innocent person is, what they look like, where they live, what country they are in. But yet, by choosing to live our way, it has an impact on them. 
Maybe that innocent person is someone receiving UK aid in a foreign land with a ruler like Herod that doesn't care for his own population. And if we cut that aid to reduce our tax, what is the chance of life that remains? If we continue to buy plastic prepacked food, then what will the sea look like in 30 years' time? And what will be left for future generations? If we ever hope for cheaper prices, then what of the farmer of the fa- or the factory worker? Will they still be paid a fair wage? The wage that they deserve? Will the factory remain a safe place to work as corners are cut to reduce cost or to move production elsewhere with lower standards? These are the things that we ignore on a daily basis as we visit the shops, cast our votes, make our decisions. As we go to the high street, our choices have impact. But do we choose to live God's way? Do we choose to hold things rightly and responsibly? And declare him the creator and look after his planet. As we switch to online retailing, run predominantly by large companies remote from the places we live, the impact on our towns will be big. Not only in the offer of a range of shops, but also in the possibilities of employment. We see it with factories. We've seen it with banks disappearing from the high street. It will come in other places too. Where are we in our decision making? Do we always go for the easy option? Or do we sometimes need to think twice? We may feel that we are merely people of mid-Sussex. But we are actually people of a heavenly power. Christ has given us superhuman abilities. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be a church to fight evil in the world in all its many disguises. We are here to declare God's love and tell of the promise he has made of forgiveness and of new life. We can be the superheroes, but we have to make the decision of when to act and when to step back. We know He has given us the ability to gather and praise. So let us also recognize the responsibility we have 
to go out in his power and declare him the king, the king of all the earth. Amen.